This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, if you are new today, we have been... In the book of Ephesians, what, I guess since right after Easter, and uh, we are going to finish that study today as we've just been walking through the book of Ephesians verse by verse, and we've been looking for these past few weeks at the armor of God. And you remember that sort of the, the outline of Ephesians is that um, in the first, uh, the first three chapters, really, um, Paul's talking about our wealth in the sense of our spiritual riches in Christ. Okay, and then from chapter 4 and verse 1 through chapter 6 and verse 9, it was about our walk. It's about the living out of the Christian life. And then from 6.10 through the end of the book, he's talking about our warfare. He's talking about the spiritual warfare that we are engaged in as believers. And part of that warfare is putting on what he calls the whole armor of God. So we've been, the past few weeks, looking through this armor just sort of piece by piece. And so we have come today to verse 17. So we're going to start in chapter 6 of verse 17 and go through the end of the book. Paul says, "...and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying..." At all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing, Tychicus, The beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thanks for this letter to the church at Ephesus, which you allowed to be preserved for us. We thank you for all the instruction that you have given us through this letter um, over these past months together. And as we conclude this study today, we pray that you would help us to strap on the armor of God and to apply the things that we've been learning in this letter that the body of Christ might be built up. And so right now in these moments as we study your word, the potential for life change is so huge because we know that your spirit empowers your word as we see today. And we pray that by the spirit you would cause your word to strike home in our hearts where we need it today. And we pray it all in Jesus' strong name. Amen. It's, um, it's hard to imagine anyone 
having a more formidable foe than David did when he faced the Philistine giant, Goliath. I mean, the Bible says that he was nine feet, nine inches tall. Don't know how much he weighed, but just his metal underwear, okay, his coat of mail was 125 pounds. The tip of his spear was 15 pounds. It's about the weight of a shot put. I mean, how was anybody going to deal with this guy one-on-one, let alone a kid like David? And conventional wisdom would say that David needed conventional armor, to say the least. And so King Saul provided his armor for David. Well, it didn't fit him. It was way too big. You know, David looked like, like one of those peewee football players, you know, with the helmet two sizes too big and the uniform drooping off of him. And he tried clunking around for a few minutes and Saul's armor, and he just finally said, yeah, you know, I, I can't go in these. And so David decided to use some gifts and some skills that he did have. God had made him fast, and he was deadly accurate with his sling. And so his strategy was to, to sprint toward Goliath, which really must have taken the giant aback, sprinted toward him, planted, and drew back his sling, and the stone sank into Goliath's forehead, and he fell over dead. The Israeli military leader Moshe Dayan, the architect of the Six-Day War, said that David's strategy was, was perfect, given his foe. The, the, the writer Malcolm Gladwell has made a similar point in a recent book that he's written called David and Goliath. See, David set aside conventional weapons and a conventional armaments and conventional, a conventional strategy and adopted weapons and strategy that suited his unique foe. And the Bible tells us to do the, the very same. The Bible tells us um, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and verses 3 and 4, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And that's what we've been seeing for the last few weeks, right? Our weapons and spiritual warfare are not conventional weapons. They're things like truth and righteousness and faith and readiness. And today we look at three more. The first is the helmet. Our helmet is salvation. Paul says in verse 17, take the helmet of salvation. Now, Roman soldiers wore a helmet that was made of bronze or iron, had cheek guards that came down around the face to protect the face, and nothing short of an axe could penetrate this helmet. What does he mean when he tells us to take the helmet of salvation? Well, a couple of things. First thing he means is He means by taking up the helmet of salvation, he's talking about our assurance of the possession of salvation. It means to take up the assurance of the possession of salvation. Jesus says in John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Jesus says that several times. Whoever believes has eternal life. So, in other words, salvation 
is not just a future expectation. It is a present possession. A present possession. The great Princeton theologian Charles Hodge said this, that which adorns and protects the Christian, which enables him to, stand, to hold up his head with confidence and joy is the fact that he is saved. Now listen, if we're not wearing the helmet of salvation in the sense of being assured that we do possess salvation, then the enemy is going to get in our heads and mess with our minds. But what is it that gives us our assurance of salvation as believers? Is it the fact that you said a sinner's prayer? Is it the fact that you walked an aisle in a church service at some point? Is it your baptism? Is it your church membership? Now, baptism and church membership are, are wonderful biblical things, but is that where we get the assurance that we're saved? Do we get our assurance of salvation by the fact that we feel spiritual? Well, I don't know about you, but my feelings vacillate sometimes. We don't always feel spiritual. Do we get assurance of salvation by our, our victory over sin. But we're not always victorious over sin, are we? Now the Bible does make it clear that if, we, if we're genuinely saved, that we are going to be growing in Christ. I mean, the process of sanctification is going to be taken, taking place. But have you noticed that the process of sanctification is a messy process? Have you noticed that the Christian life is like a couple of steps forward, then a step back? You know, and we're, we're, we're not always victorious in the struggle against sin. Sometimes we fail. What all of those approaches to assurance have in common is that they're encouraging you to focus on something you have done. I prayed a prayer. I walked an aisle. I was baptized. I joined the church. I feel spiritual. I'm experiencing some victory against sin. It's the focus in all of those things is on you and what you have done. That is not how we are assured of our salvation. We are assured of our salvation not by focusing on ourselves or anything that we have done. We get assurance of salvation by focusing on Christ and what Christ has done. Focusing not on our victory, but on His victory. On the cross, Jesus cried out, It is finished! And that means that as a Christian, you can live all of life under the banner, it is finished. Jesus cried out, it is accomplished. It means we can live as believers all of life under the banner, it is accomplished, done. Jesus cried out on the cross, paid in full. 
And that means that as believers, we can live all of life under the banner, paid in full. The debt has been paid. Our sin debt has been paid. You need to know that you are completely accepted and loved by God that you've been adopted as His child. And that is not based on your performance. It is based on the performance of Jesus for you in the Gospel. You need to know that you are completely accepted, loved, that you've been adopted as a child of God, not based on your righteousness, but based on the perfect righteousness of Jesus that was credited to your account when you trusted in Him. If you don't have that, if you're relying on anything less than that for assurance, Satan, whose very name means accuser, is going to get in your head and mess with your mind. So you better strap on the helmet of salvation in the sense of being assured of it. Not by anything you've done, but by looking to Christ and what Christ has done. And so, putting on the helmet of salvation means that, first of all. It means assurance of the, pre- of the, of, of the possession of salvation. And we get that by looking to Jesus and what Jesus has done. It it also means this. Putting on the helmet of salvation means assurance of the perfection of salvation. So, in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, Paul puts it slightly differently. He says there, put on for a helmet the hope of salvation. Put on for a helmet the hope of salvation. And in the context of 1 Thessalonians 5, what he's talking about is the second coming of Christ. When Christ returns and we are going to be, believers are going to be raised and we're going to get resurrection bodies. That is going to be the perfection, the completion of salvation. That's what Paul's talking about in Philippians 1 when he says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The day of Jesus Christ is the day that Christ returns. And on that day, our salvation is going to be brought to to completion, to perfection, in that we are going to get our resurrection bodies. And so part of putting on The helmet of salvation is looking forward to that glorious day with confident hope. So, when the enemy seeks to get you to doubt your salvation, and he will, please remind the creep of a few pertinent facts, okay? Remind him of things like this. Jesus Christ paid for my sin that on the cross defeated death by rising from the dead and one day He's going to raise me. There is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ took our condemnation for us on the cross. I have been saved from the penalty of sin. I am being saved from the power of sin. And one day I am going to be saved from the very presence of sin. God has adopted me as His own beloved child, sees me clothed in the perfect righteousness of His Son, and no one can snatch me out of His hand, as John 10 says. And then laugh at the enemy and go forth in confidence and assurance and joy. That's what it means to put on the helmet of salvation. Second, he tells us to take up the sword of the Spirit. Our sword is the Spirit-empowered Word. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. God's Spirit-empowered Word. So he says in verse 17, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, Roman soldiers used a short sword in hand-to-hand combat, which is the sword that he's talking about here, um, and it was it was uh, it was especially geared for for up close fighting, and that, that's the word that Paul uses here for uh, for sword. And the Greek word that he uses in verse seventeen for word um, is it's a word that refers to the spoken word of the gospel, the spoken word of the gospel. Now last week we talked about putting on shoes of readiness and being ready to make that announcement of the word of the gospel. What he's talking about here is that when we announce that good news, that word of the gospel that the Holy Spirit empowers that. The Holy Spirit empowers the spoken word of the gospel. That's what Hebrews 4 is talking about when it says the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Christian journalist Colin Hansen tells about being at the Passion event a few years ago, this huge gathering, thousands of young adults, um, Christian young adults, and uh, some, of our, some of our folks have been to Passion um, but the column was there and reporting on the, the, the conference. And he struck up a conversation with this young man named Robin Tweeto. And in the course of the conversation, Robin told him that in the past few months that he had listened to over 200 of John Piper's sermons. John Piper was one of the speakers at, at the Passion. So they were talking about him. And he said, yeah, I've listened to over 200 of this guy's sermons in the past few months. And then what really captured Colin's attention was when Robin told him, he said, well, up until a few months ago, I wouldn't have listened to any sermon, let alone hundreds of them. I was more into smoking weed and partying. Um, And he said that what happened was that his cousin, the same cousin that had introduced him to some of the bad stuff he was doing, um, had had this radical change in his life and he'd, he'd received... Christ, and, um, and that got 
Robin's attention because he knew what his cousin was like, you know. Um, and so his, he got his attention, and one day his cousin sat down with him and he opened the Bible to the book of Romans, and he, he, he shared the gospel with him. Robin did not understand. He was thoroughly confused by what his cousin was trying to tell him. And so he left the house that night completely baffled and confused, got behind the wheel of his car to drive away, and before he could turn the ignition, something unexplainable and powerful and supernatural happened. The words of Scripture struck him as true. And he repented of his sins and trusted in Jesus, what happened to Robin Trito? It was the Spirit-empowered Word striking home. Does that happen every time that we share the Gospel with people? No. No, it doesn't. It didn't happen every time that Jesus or the Apostle Paul shared the good news with people. Or even most of the time that they shared the good news with people. Um... When it does happen, does it always happen immediately? No. It didn't happen immediately with Robin Trito. He left the house that night thoroughly confused. Sometimes it happens right then. Sometimes it happens later. And by later, that can be days later, weeks later, months later, or years later. John 3.8 tells us that the Holy Spirit is like the wind. It says that, you know, just as the, um, the wind goes wherever it wants, you know, you don't know where it comes from, you don't know where it's going, so it is with those who are born of the Spirit. We cannot control the Holy Spirit any more than we control the wind. What we can control is whether we are sharing the good news of Christ with people and whether we are sending others who can go into places that we can't go and who are sharing it with people that we cannot personally reach. That's what the Lottie Moon offering is all about. Whether or not we are, we're, we're sharing the gospel with the people that God has put in our lives, we control that. We control whether or not we send others to go but we don't, we don't control the work of the Spirit. This is something that's incredibly encouraging. And it's this. The Bible says that God has prepared for Himself a people who will believe. God has prepared for Himself a people who will believe. We don't know who they are. It's not our job to know. Our job is to go and share the gospel with every person. But God has prepared people who are going to believe in our city and all over the world. In Acts, Paul has been sharing the gospel in the city of Corinth with mixed results, like it was everywhere that he went. You know, um, Some believed. Some didn't believe. Some were downright hostile. And that's been happening in the city of Corinth. And maybe Paul was discouraged. And God knew that. And one night, 
God came to him in a dream, in a vision. And he says this, Acts 18. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Who's he talking about? Who's God talking about when he says, I have many in this city who are my people? He's talking about people who are not yet Christians, but who are going to become Christians. Now let me tell you something. God has people like that in this city. Some of them are your friends, your relatives, people that you work with. Right now their lives are totally secular. They may be running away from God as fast as they can. Never mind. Never mind. God is going to do a great work in their life. God has people like that all over the world. Nishat Ibrahim is here today. When you think about the, the work of the gospel in places like the places where Nishat goes, I mean, think about the barriers to the gospel. I mean, th- can you think about someone coming out of Islam with all of its bondage, I mean, all of the family ties and you're going to get completely uh, disowned by your family and, 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 you, and you may get tortured or thrown in jail or killed for becoming a Christian. Okay, think about all those barriers that, are, that the gospel faces in, in areas like that. And you, and you think about someone coming out of all of that, that prison, and giving their lives to Christ. I mean, that, those are significant barriers, right? Never mind. Never mind. Because I'm telling you, all over the world, in every city, God has prepared for Himself a people. And Revelation tells us that, that one day people from every tribe and tongue are going to be gathered around the throne and singing praises to Jesus. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And see, we don't know who those people are. It's not our job to know. It is our job to go and share the gospel, to announce the good news to every person. And the Holy Spirit is going to bring people to Himself. But listen, just as God has ordained the ends that some will believe God has also ordained the means of getting that done. And what are the means? Well, we saw it last week in Romans 10. We'll look at it again. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then? Will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe of Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? We have to share the Gospel. God brings people to Himself through the proclamation of the Gospel. Can we share the Gospel with every person ourselves? No. So what do we do? We send others. How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I mean, some people God has put into our lives that we can share the Gospel with. We're accountable for doing so. But most people on this planet, we can't personally reach. 
the beautiful thing about this Lottie Moon offering is that we have the opportunity to be a direct part of a team by sending others who are in the process of reaching every single people group on earth. Making that announcement in every single people group on earth with the final result that there are going to be people from every people group on earth praising Jesus. We get to be a part of that. Our sword is God's spirit-empowered word. Our walkie-talkie is prayer. So in verse 18, Paul begins to talk about prayer. He's talking about prayer throughout verses 18 through 20. And as he begins this um, talking about prayer in verse 18, this is not a new section in chapter 6. It's not like he's finished talking about the armor of God and now he's moving on to prayer. No. This is a continuation. And in Greek, this is super clear. In fact, there's no break at all between verse 17 and 18. He says, take this, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, pray. So prayer is the weapon that pervades every other weapon, every other part of the armor. As we put on every part of the armor, that is to be done with prayer. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't use part of the Roman soldier's outfit to, as sort of a metaphor for prayer, but in, in modern warfare, we have a really uh, easy uh, connection to make there, and that's the walkie-talkie. Because no modern soldier is going to be without one. They, have, they, they use the walkie-talkie to do what? To call in airstrikes, to uh, get guidance and commands from the commanding officer, from headquarters, right? That's what prayer does. In his great book on missions, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper says this, we cannot know what prayer is until we know that we cannot know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. Our weakness in prayer is owing largely to our neglect of this truth. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts for the den. God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. Now, Piper is not saying here that it's wrong to pray for domestic needs, for personal needs. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying if, if, that's, if that's the only thing you're praying about in your personal prayer life, if that's the only thing that you're praying about in your, your small group or your class or whatever, you're missing something. You're missing something. Um, if you are a Sunday school teacher or a small group leader, ministry leader, just want to encourage you. Um, in your prayer times, you should be praying about more than just personal needs of your class members, I mean, yes, pray for those things, but that needs to be balanced out, and I mean big time balanced out, by you know, praying for the salvation of lost 
people in our lives, people that need to be reached with the gospel, praying for missionaries. You have in your bulletin today a prayer guide that you can use this week to pray for missionaries. And I encourage you not to leave it stuffed in your Bible, (laughs) but to use it this week. Pray for these people. Listen, they know the difference when we're praying for them. The, one of the great Christian leaders of the 20th century, Archbishop William Temple, the Church of England, once said, it's amazing how when I'm praying, all kinds of coincidences are happening in my life, and when I stop praying, those coincidences don't happen as much. It's kind of like the golfer Gary Player, when somebody accused him of being lucky, he said, yeah, and the more I practice, the luckier I get. It's not amazing how that happens. Well, William Temple knew that those things weren't coincidences at all. That, they were, that God answers prayer. I mean, I mean listen, what, what, a, what a privilege that we have to be able to communicate with our commanding officer 24-7. What an encouragement to know that He answers prayer. And so all of these weapons, every part of the armor of God, all of life is to be bathed in prayer. Look at, the, look at the prevalence of the word all in verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And then... He prays for boldness. He asks the Ephesians to, to pray for, uh, for boldness. He says, and pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about those flaming arrows that the enemy fires our way. One of those flaming arrows is the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel. The temptation to be cowardly and timid with the gospel instead of being bold with it. At age 26, Ken Elzinga became a professor at the University of Virginia. Shortly after that time, a colleague told him, you know, Ken, it's okay to be a Christian here, but you know, you may not want to be super explicit with your faith. And he was a relatively new believer at that point, and that comment really shook him. And then he was really shaken when right after that comment, he was walking across campus, and he got to the busiest part of the campus at UVA, and there was a a kiosk. And on that kiosk was posted a flyer by a campus ministry And there was Ken's face on the flyer because he was due to speak at this campus ministry. And he went home that night, you know, and he's just tossing and turning in in bed and he's just filled with anxiety and fear. He's like, am I going to blow my chance for for tenure, you know, and are are my colleagues going to think less of me And, and, and on and on. He got up out of bed, drove to the campus and took down the flyer off the kiosk and then went back home and tried to go to sleep. That didn't work out well. 
And so he's tossing and turning. And that night, in the wee hours of the morning, Ken Elzinga came to just a fundamental decision about his life. And his decision was, my life is not going to be about career ambition. It's going to be about faithful discipleship. And being silent or timid about my Christianity is simply not an option for a faithful disciple. That was about four decades ago. In the years since that time, Ken Elzinga has been named Professor of the Year several times at UVA. He's received the Thomas Jefferson Award, which is the highest award that can be given to a faculty member at UVA, and his classes are some of the most popular on campus. And he serves on the National Board of Directors for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Ken Elzinga says this. He says, serving one master has been a liberating way to live. Living for an audience of one has made me less anxious, less sensitive to criticism, and more courageous. Be bold. Pray for boldness. But Paul wasn't just bold. He was loving. He was loving. He closes out this letter by thanking people and blessing people. What does he say um, in verses 20 and 20, uh, 21 and 22? He says, So that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing, Tychicus... The beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Tychicus is the guy who delivers the letter. Now imagine that. Can you imagine being given that responsibility of of carrying the letter to the Ephesians to the church in Ephesus? And remember, no backup, right? Right? No computer. It's not saved. Somewhere on his person, Tychicus made this journey and he's got this precious letter tucked away. But it didn't stay tucked away, right? It was delivered to the church. Just like the gospel is not to stay tucked away in our lives. It's to be delivered to people and shared with people. And then he closes the letter with this beautiful benediction in verses 23 and 24. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible, undying. So much of this letter has been about God's great love for us, right? You know, how great and amazing is the the love of Christ. But He closes by saying a word about our love for Jesus. Do you love Him? Do you love Him with a love that's undying, that's that's incorruptible, that's going to last throughout all eternity? Because one day, very soon, we're going to see Him. On that day, we can put down our armor. We, We can put down the weapons. Won't need them anymore. But I'll tell you something. On that day, we will not regret one moment that we spent as soldiers in His service. 
not one. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to know you, to serve you. We pray that you would help us to to put on the helmet of salvation, that we would be assured that we are your children, um, not because of anything that we have done, but because of the work of Christ, that we would, we would constantly, as Hebrews 12 tells us, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, that we would put our eyes on the finished work of Christ and be assured on the basis of what Jesus has done. We look to him in faith. We pray that you would help us to be faithful to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, that we would be faithful to speak the words of life with the people in our lives and that we would be faithful in sending others to speak that Word in places that we cannot go. We pray that you would help us to take up our wartime walkie-talkie, that we would bathe all of this armor and every part of life and prayer knowing that apart from you we can do nothing so we just continue to bow before God maybe you're here today God's speaking to you about knowing him about a relationship with him we don't want you to leave without being able to talk with someone and have your questions answered In just a few moments, we're going to have a time of invitation. It's going to be here at the front. You can come talk with me then. You can talk with me after the service. We want to be here for you. We don't want you to leave with unanswered questions. We don't want you to leave without being prayed for. If you're here and um, there's something that you'd like to pray with someone about, you're invited to come now or again after the service. Or if you're here today and God's speaking to you about being a part of our church family, We want to invite you to come as others stand. Just slip out from where you are and we want to to welcome you. So Father, we give you now this time of invitation. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in hearts accomplishing what you have purposed in lives for your glory's sake. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. 
Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving Father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.